Take your copy of God's Word, the Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've spoken to us through the reading of your word, and we ask now that you would speak to us as we seek to understand it in the sermon. Give life and light to our struggling hearts, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I have to begin uh, with a trigger warning. I'm going to upset some of you terribly. I know this. It is only 75 days until Christmas. 
Ah, there it is. Oh, my goodness, right? Less than 11 weeks. Less than 11 weeks, and you have to have all of your Christmas stuff done. Right? You have to, to be ready. And for some of you, that's tremendous anxiety. I'm not ready. Are we already there yet? I haven't even made my Christmas list. What am I going to put on it? What do I want? For some of you in your homes, this is about the time of year where uh, it begins that process of crafting that Christmas list. What goes on it? What doesn't go on it? Depending on your home, the home that I grew up in, if it was on your Christmas list, you were guaranteed not to get it. (laughs) So it was a little bit of a kind of cat and mouse game between kids and mom and dad. It was, you, you put things on it that you might like, but you knew you didn't desperately want. Mom and dad had to figure those out. Right, your other families, it might be that you everything that goes on the list are the things that might show up as part of the family exchange. Maybe, maybe not. Doesn't matter. The interesting thing, though, is as through that entire process and really all of it, it, it becomes this exercise in our desires mixed with anxiety. Begin to understand that as a parent where so much of any holiday that gifts are given, whether it's birthdays or whether it's Christmas or whether it's Arbor Day and you give each other trees, it doesn't matter. It's all an exercise in trying to figure out other people's desires mixed with sometimes the anxiety of the performance of a gift. Well, is it a good gift? Is it a bad gift? I don't know. Right? Young married men know this feeling. Every gift I give seems to be a bad one, and that really is because it is a bad one. I just haven't figured that out yet. It's an exercise in anxiety, meeting, desire. Matthew chapter 6 is a chapter that, that interacts with both of, both of those concepts, uh, again, in a clear way, in helping us kind of think through our own mind the meeting place between desire and anxiety. The meeting place, the the joining place between the things I want and the feelings I have when I want them and do not get them. If you were here last week and paying attention where we've been thus far in this chapter, Jesus is laying out what his kingdom looks like. What does it it mean to be a child of King, uh, the Lord himself and in the kingdom of Jesus? And what does it mean to be a part of the people of God? What does that look like? And it's a a very different situation. The first part of chapter 6, Jesus has said, look, if, if you've entered into my kingdom by grace, if you've entered into my kingdom by mercy, by forgiveness of sin, then there is reward and blessing unlike anything you've ever known. Some of that is given in this life in the form of peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and goodness and love. And the vast majority of it is given in the life to come. Eating, even building up to the command that we've had of storing up treasures for yourself in heaven, acknowledging that the Lord's interest rate is infinitely better than any interest rate you can find here. Right? The most generous of banks today only pays this much, and all you get back is money. 
The Lord himself is infinitely more generous, whereas we, as God's people already forgiven, invest our lives in him. He returns with kindness and generosity over and over and over and above what we could possibly imagine. In the latter part of chapter 6, Jesus changes gears and acknowledges the natural human tendency of people where once we have a conversation about blessing, acknowledging that we're frail creatures, the next conversation that normally needs to be addressed in some fashion is that of greed. If we're talking about getting blessings and getting things, well, I want lots of things. I want lots of blessings. I I might actually want more things than you. I might want more blessings than you. And in the end of chapter 6, Jesus explains that. Now, first thing I want to look at, verses 19 through 23 in these verses, is the nature in which God has made people to deal with our desires. Our desires, this is key to understand, Human desires are formative. And that's a word that you may not be accustomed to using. Formative means that they shape you. They they make you look a certain way. They change you. They transform you. God, in explaining how humans work, whether the desires are good desires or bad desires, they're formative. They shape the people that have those desires. Right, verses 19 and 20, we really dealt with those last week. Don't store up for yourselves treasures here on earth. Why? Because that's all going to pass away. You can't take it with you when you die. It stays here, maybe goes to your grave, but it can't go with you into the life to come. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures that go with you wherever you go. Treasures defined by your relationship with the triune God. Uh, But then verse 21, we didn't really highlight, but Jesus explains this really profound statement here of where your treasure is, the things that you desire, the longings that you have, well, your heart follows. Your desires shape you. Your desires change you. This was an interesting thing in youth ministry land as youth pastor for almost four years. And I loved being a youth pastor, but I also loved because uh, teenagers are basically adults, but just a bit less sophisticated. Right? They struggle with all the same things that people in their 40s struggle with. They're just more obvious about it. And I loved that. Uh, I also loved that it's such a, a period of life where their change was so rapid. The changes that you could watch an adult go through are very slow. Right? But changes teenagers go through is very, very quick. And it was intriguing to watch how a student could pick up a new hobby and you could see how that that hobby transformed that student. You could watch a student that suddenly got interested in a new sport. They've never played a sport before. But suddenly they get interested in a sport and they start working at that sport. And what happens in just a matter of weeks or months or maybe even a year, they, they might lose a lot of weight. Something that at 40 doesn't happen quite so fast. They might get suddenly much more graceful in how they hold their body. Now, interestingly, I haven't gotten any more graceful in years. In fact, I'm fairly certain it's working the other way, right? You could watch how their new hobby would change them. Sometimes for the better. 
sometimes much, much for the worse. It was interesting how their heart would follow and you could see it and it shaped entirely who they were. My, my, I'm being candid and this is going to go on film and I know that my absolute least favorite out of all the like normal and moral ones was marching band. Because down where we were had really good marching bands and once a student joined marching band it meant I never saw them ever again. They were gone. It was all consuming. All of their life was shaped by that. I would never see them in church ever again. It was hard. I hated it. Our desires shape us. They, they form us. They inform how we are and who we are. He then gives a parable. Jesus does here in verse 22 and 23. It's a very difficult parable and probably the hardest in this chapter. The eye is the lamp of the whole body. It's the only way that we see. It's the only way that the outside world enters in in a way that we can perceive it visually. Uh, In this way, using ancient language, it's the lamp of the body. It's what provides light for us to understand. So when your eye is able to see, your whole body gets light. But when your eyes are broken, when your eyes are destroyed, it, it fills the entirety of the body with darkness. And Jesus here is giving this kind of parable explaining to say, look, when your desires are godly desires, guess what happens? They enter in and they give life to the person inside and they transform the person inside and it reshapes them from the inside out. When a person has longing for God, he gives. And that longing remakes who that person is and how they are, and it changes them and alters them and transforms them. Likewise, on the opposite extreme, a person who is only longing for, the one illustration Jesus is going to give in a moment is, if they're only longing for money, guess what? Most people can figure out how to make that happen. If you're willing to work harder than anybody, willing to get dirtier than anybody, maybe even sometimes willing to bend the rules in a way that nobody else is willing to, you can make money. But it changes you. It alters you. It transforms you. Again, in pastoring now for almost almost 20 years, that's a number I don't like, I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with people where they say things like, I never thought my sin would take me this far. Not surprised. It's transformative. Your your desires are, they, they shape you. And guess what? When you long for sin and you pursue sin and you pursue even things that might be perceived as kind of normal and good things here on earth, but at the full measure and at the full pursuit, it changes you. And you have folks that kind of shake their head and wake up in a moment and say, how did I ever get here? How was I ever willing to do that? How did I get to this place? Well, guess what? Part of it was you had desires that were sinful. And guess what? Those sinful desires give birth to sinful actions, which give birth to greater sinful desires, which give birth to greater sinful actions. And it's a spiral That reshapes who you are. Students, children, your parents tell you, I'm assuming, I hope with great regularity, be careful what you love. Be careful what you get excited about. It will change you. It remakes you. And I would say that to adults. (laughs) Adults, 
pay attention to what you learn to love. It changes you. It remakes you. It alters you. You don't believe me. Think about the television shows that you used to love 20 years ago and 10 years ago and five years ago and five weeks ago. And for many Christians, you can see the the desensitizing process. And the things that might have made you kind of a little squeamish 20 years ago are normal fare today. The things we desire change us. They reshape us. Well, you say, okay, well, that's not a problem. I guess all I have to do then is, is, is a balance issue, right? I can desire all the things the world has to offer. I can desire fame. I can desire pleasure. I can, I can desire wealth. I can uh, desire for people to love me. I can desire all this world has to offer. But as long as I desire God a little bit more, it's fine. 51-49 percentage is great. It's the best of both worlds. Well, unfortunately, that's not how people work. We're, we're not both and creatures. I say this with great regularity. We're, we're extremists by nature. In fact, actually, in this case, our desires, we're pre-programmed to be that way. Look at what Jesus says in verse 24, your second idea here. No one can serve two masters. You're either going to love the one and hate the other. Or hate the one and love the other. They're mutually exclusive. And this is intriguing. Kind of The Lord's designed for our desires to shape us, to be formative. But he's designed for them to be mutually exclusive. And I put it this way. is When we're, when we're longing for the things of this world, or even sadly, even longing for sin, that does not coexist with the longing for God. They're not like, you know, kind of that unhappy roommate situation where they maintain a truce, but it's all right. You know, I mean, I long for God like this percentage of the time, but these couple of sins, they're all right. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that much of a problem. Well, interestingly, Jesus lays out, no, it's it's not the case. You, You can't do that. What ends up happening is eventually one wins out and you... Learn to love one and despise the other. And I would, again, challenge us here as Christians as there is very much this idea in the American moment, in the American culture, in the American mindset to say, well, I can be a Christian in a little bit. I can have all of the things that this life offers. I can live the fullness of my life. I can have the good life and have part of that be Christianity. A relationship with Christ, well, it can exist in this compartment, but that doesn't have to alter the rest of my desires. It doesn't have to impact my Christmas list or my birthday list or my Arbor Day list, whatever holiday your family celebrates. The problem is is that that, that's impossible. We're not wired that way. Jesus even goes so far as to put a specific example on it. You can't serve both God and serve money. Those longings are mutually exclusive. It's like saying, hey, honey, we're going to go on a road trip. We're going to drive east and west at the exact same time. You can't do that if you go on the road trip together. Maybe if you go separately, I guess, but not together. You can't do that. It's, they're mutually exclusive. They, they don't work that way. 
Now, what God is laying out here is a challenge. Jesus is laying out a challenge for his people to say, look, Christianity works in its best form, its truest form, in its correct form when you are fully 100% devoted to the Lord Jesus. When there's no parts and pieces of your life that you're secretly squirreling away and hiding from him to say, well, God can do uh, anything he wants, but he can't touch this. God can do anything he wants, but he can't touch my income. I got to have that. God can do anything he wants, but he can't touch my sports. He can't have that. God can do anything he wants. He can't touch my kids. He can't touch my career. He can't touch my intelligence. He can't touch whatever it is he can't touch. That's off limits for God. My friends, what you're doing when you say that is to say that God is not ultimate. And therefore is not ultimate in your life. And what Jesus is laying out is a challenge for his people to present them to say, no, look, what God is demanding is all of you. He's demanding that instead of living our life with a clenched fist to say, this part of this world belongs to me. It's to live our lives with an open hand to say, it all belongs to you and all of me belongs to you. And you're wiser than I am and you are better, you're more good than I am. And you'll use my life better than I can even use my life. And so I trust you. Now you can understand how that might be a little bit of an anxiety-inducing event. Right? If I'm going to trust God with all of my life, well, I'm going to be bothered by that. Because God's not going to do it the way I want to do it. Right? If I'm going to say, hey, God, look, my money is it's yours. You get to use it. Well, he's not going to use it the way I want to use it. If I say my health belongs to you, he might not use my health the way that I want to use it. He might not use my children the way I would want to use them. And you can see how that would promote a tremendous sense of insecurity if you do not trust God, which is where his next idea goes. Therefore, I tell you a command, do not be anxious about your life. I'll be honest, this was a passage that I've been nervous for preaching for a number of weeks because I do not think there has been a single emotion quite so strong and quite so strongly denied in our current culture since March as anxiety. We are a nation that has existed in anxiety since about the second week of March. I've done more pastoral counseling since March than I did all of last calendar year. I'm not, I mean, it's, in, it's amazing, right? I, mean, I, th- I think I did almost 20 hours last week alone. We're in a cultural moment in which we've been challenged with our health. We've been challenged with our mortality. 
people are realizing death is going to get them. We've been challenged with our hobbies. We've had our sports taken away. We've been challenged with our activities. We've been challenged educationally. We've been challenged uh, politically. We've been challenged in how we have national discourse. And by that, I mean we don't actually have national discourse. We just scream at each other. We've been challenged in every sort of imaginable way that we possibly could to induce anxiety in the person. And guess what? By and large, our country has failed. If ever there has been an argument for learning to trust the Lord God and know that he does life well, just watch the average American in 2020. Right, we see ads for mental health left, right, and center. Because ultimately what's happened is those desires that we've built our entire life around for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80 years, whatever it is, we've built our identity around our desires. God in his infinite mercy in 2020 has taken most of those away. All the things that you would hope in, all the things on your Christmas list, all the things that you would desperately want, they're being stripped away. And as a nation, we're realizing that when I don't get my way, I get very upset about that. When I don't get the things I want in the way that I want, I get very angry about that. I get very upset about that. In fact, it actually might even prompt some great anxiety. And the interesting thing is, as you interact with anxious people, you can't just say to them, don't be anxious. It doesn't work. That doesn't stop the anxiety. All that makes me do is feel badly about my anxiety. Instead, anxiety has to be conquered by thinking of greater thoughts. It's in essence, it's like uh, drowning your desires with greater desires. It's to take a cup that's empty and to stick it into a waterfall so it overflows. It's to, to fill it with greater fullness. And interestingly, Jesus gives the command in 25, don't be anxious, and then proceeds to explain why we should not be anxious. Verse 26 Look at the birds of the air, right? Birds are amazing creatures. You've not paid attention to birds. You should pay attention to birds. They're amazing creatures. They have hollow bones so that they can be lighter. Birds, this is the one that gets me, they don't have stomachs, right? Did you know that? They don't have stomachs. And so when they eat their food, it does not sit in their stomach to digest. It immediately goes into their intestinal tract so it can be processed as quickly as possible and dumped so that they don't have fat stores, They don't have fat reserves. Uh, And the reason for that is because fat makes you heavy, obviously. Uh, Some of us are a great lesson in that, right? We know this story. Uh, Fat makes us heavy. Uh, Birds, in order to fly, can't be heavy, so they have no fat, which means they have to eat all the time, which is really interesting because they don't have the ability to farm. They don't have the ability to go to the store. They don't have the ability to grow their own food. All they have the ability to do is scavenge constantly. What is Jesus saying? Look at the birds. They don't have the ability to do anything. They, They neither sow nor reap. They can't gather into the barns. Yet, God takes these amazing creatures that are unable to store fat, that have to eat constantly, that die if they don't. Hummingbirds particularly, it's insane how much they have to eat. It's crazy. And guess what? 
God cares for them. These amazing little obnoxious creatures that fly into the windows when they're too clean, these creatures God keeps alive. Do you not think you're more important than the birds? Are you not of more value than they? And what a great point Jesus is making is, look, we can look around at creation and we can marvel at how it works and understand that the Lord is infinitely wise with his creation, but to understand that people are infinitely more important to him. People are made in his image. People are the only ones with a moral nature, apart from the angels. People are the ones that he sent his son to die for so that he could redeem for himself a people. Humans are the only ones inside creation that have this sort of value. And uh, Jesus is saying, look, if you think God takes care of the birds, why would he not take care of you? Be at peace. On top of that, do you think God actually heeds your worry? When he listens to it, does it Does it work? For those of you that struggle with this or the seasons of life that you can remember that you have where those sleepless nights where you stay up all night and your, your mind just cycles through over and over and over again, the what ifs and the what ifs and the what ifs and the what ifs, and does it actually change anything? Verse 27, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? Can you make your, your life longer by being anxious? I love this illustration because as we've grown to understand medicine a little bit better, what does anxiety actually do? It shortens your life. You may not know this, it lowers your immune system immensely. There's a reason why happy people get sick less. It's because the Lord has designed anxiety to be poison to our system. You can't make your life any longer. You can't extend your life. God doesn't change his plan based on, his, on your worry. His plan was perfect all along. He's taking the myth out of our worry to say, look, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't improve anything. It doesn't change anything. 28 and 29, God shows off his creativity and his power. Why are you anxious even about the things that you wear? Now, most of us are no longer anxious about the things that we wear, I guess. Maybe most of us, at least, I would imagine. The time in which this is being written, clothing would have been a very serious thing. You only had maybe one, two outfits tops. It was not a thing that was easily accomplished. It was very expensive. You took good care of it. That's why you darned socks and filled holes and all those things of the sort. And what's Jesus saying here? Well, let's consider clothing. Look out at the flowers, the lilies of the field, the wildflowers. Look how just God has made creation such that it grows so beautifully. And if he clothes creation so beautifully, how would he do anything less for you, which are far more important to him than even the flowers? God is so creative that he showcased he can do anything he wants and do it well. And he's cared for the flowers. He's cared for creation. And he's promised that he will care for his children. He'll care for his children. I 
Verse 30, again, it's an argument of lesser to greater. Jesus is a master at teaching us uh, object lessons to help us kind of be reminded so that when you looked around natural life, you could see reminders of what God is teaching, what God is doing. Verse 30, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, uh, will he not much more clothe you of little faith? And you can think about this. Uh, when you cut your grass, now it's the end of the season, so you're not cutting it as regularly, but uh, if you fertilize your lawn here in, in, in the south and it gets proper water, every week it's like green. And it's obnoxious because you have to cut it. It's always there. It's growing so quickly. I remember uh, the first summer after I came back from college, I worked landscaping at Calvary Church where I was in charge of helping landscape something like 100 acres. One of the wettest summers we had in Charlotte history and one of the hottest. And so guess what happened to the grass? It was like a jungle. We could not cut it fast enough. There were some weeks we cut all of the grass twice in the same week. Every day going to work was an exercise in futility. I'd be cutting this part knowing in like three days I'd be cutting the exact same part. And if God blesses his creation in such a way, he he clothes the ground in such a way, why would I think he would care for me any less? Object lessons to look around at, think about the birds, to think about the flowers, to think about the grass. Now, how do we put that into practice? What do we do with this, right? I've walked you through what the passage means, kind of what do we do in terms of application and and how do we live differently? Well, first and foremost, the command that started this entire section is do not be anxious. Put away your anxiety. And again, said that you can't just tell someone to stop. It has to be drowned out with greater desires. And I would lovingly ask you to consider your desires. Now, I'm going to be honest. There are a few things that I have found that humans are less willing to discuss than the things they actually want. It's funny, when a couple comes in for marriage counseling... They'll talk about how they fight. They'll talk about superficial things they want done differently. They'll talk about all of the things except for what their heart desires. Because when you begin to explain what your heart desires, it begins to be vulnerable and scary and show who you are. And to think how many folks, when we begin to show our desires, what do we see? Well, we see that we just want to be the center of the universe. Or we just want to be happy at all costs, even at the sake of our family or our spouse or our children. Or we just want to have pleasure. We would never say it so crassly and we would be ashamed if anybody actually knew that. But all we want is a life that's filled with pleasure. But we've been raised not to be so tacky or crass as to be nasty about it. It's important that God's people pause and reflect periodically. What are the desires that are driving you? That are shaping you? that are informing you. I would lovingly, as your pastor, challenge you to stop and reflect on this because I'm going to be honest with you. So much of what's motivating American culture today and even Christian culture is my desires are all about me. 
I want to look good. I want to feel good. I want to sound good. I want to smell good. I want to be good in everybody's eyes because it's all about me. And the interesting thing here that Jesus is challenging us to is to say, your, your desires are to be about him. They're to be about him, and, and this is where we begin to see how much of sinners we actually are. To see how far short we fall of desiring a relationship with the Lord and letting that dominate everything about us, even our anger, even our expectations, even our desires. Secondly, I would challenge you with this. Please stop the what-ifs. So much of our energy as humans is spent thinking about the what-ifs over and over and over and over again. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if he does this? What if she says that? What if this is that? And what if that is that? And what if this? And what if? And what if? And, and it's just what if after what if after what if after what if. Instead of saying, I know my God and he is good. I don't have to worry about the what ifs. He'll provide. He'll care. He'll watch over me. He watches over the flowers. He watches over the grass. He watches over the birds. He'll watch over me. Because realistically, I I wish this was the thing that 2020 will go down in the history books for. I guess it still could. It hasn't yet. But I wish it would be this is the year where our country figured out that life is better when we trust a triune God instead of trusting in our own desires to be met in our own deeds and our own works. Because as I said earlier, adults are really not that different from teenagers. We just do things a bit more slowly. Rather than making our desires quite so obvious, we're the same thing. Creatures governed by our longings, and for so many of us, so much of the time our longings are not for the God who has saved us and has loved us. Let us pray. Father, we confess our sin to you. We've fallen far short in our longings. Longing for self, longing for pleasure, longing for money. In fact, actually, we are so deep in our longings that we even refuse to admit it most of the time. We don't long for forgiveness. We don't long to be in your presence. We don't long for the peace that passes all understanding. Well, maybe we do, but we don't want to pursue it in the right way. And we ask for your forgiveness. And we pray, O Lord, that you would teach us that you are trustworthy and true, even when we are not. Bless us for Christ's sake, we ask. Amen.